Parshas told us, Esav's role in history. When Rivka, our mother, approached the prophet of Hashem and was given the Besura Toiva that she was carrying twins, among the things that she was told were three short words that would determine the course of history. Verav Yavod Tzayir. The older one will serve the younger, told us. That was the prophecy that Rivka gained even before Yaakov and Esav came into this world. Now some people take it to mean simply that because Esav would be wicked, therefore his progeny, the nation of Edom, would be forced to be subservient to the Am Yisrael. And to say such a thing is partially true. That Esav's descendants would serve the children of Yaakov was certainly included in the words, Verav Yaavod Sa'id. It happened that way in our nation's history again and again that this prophecy came true. In the days of David Melech, he went out with his army to conquer Edom. And for many years after, the nation-state of Edom remained a tributary, a vassal state for the Jewish nation. They were forced to be slaves to the Am Yisroel. And later, in the days of Vayashemi, the prophecy was fulfilled once again. Yochanan Horkonus, one of the Hashmonai kings, conquered Edom and was forcibly megayer them. They were forced to circumcise and become servant slaves to the Malchus Beis Hashmonai. And so, there's no question that the words the Navi said to Rivka meant that as well. Esav would have to Yavod Said. He would have to enter into servitude under the control of his younger brother. And yet, there's something curious here because we know that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Rivka that the older one would serve the younger one, Esav hadn't done anything wrong yet. He hadn't even been born yet. A man who hasn't yet exercised his free will should be sentenced to servitude because of sins that he didn't do. It can't be. Now, I understand that we already have ideas in our head from when we were children, especially when we learned the Agadita in Rashi. That when Rivka passed by a base avoid the Esav became agitated within her. He wanted to come out already and run into the church. And therefore, we think it means that from the beginning, even before the beginning, Esav was already an Oyved Avoidazara. That's also how they make the pictures in the children's books. Esav is portrayed as a wicked-looking fellow adorned with weapons of war. According to the one picture that someone showed me, he was born wearing boxing gloves. However, all this we have to know is not so. Not only is it not true, but it's against the fundamental principles of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There is no such thing. Wicked at birth has no place by us. Such doctrines you can find only in corruptions of Judaism, in foreign religions that speak about original sin, and other things that are alien to Torah. According to the Torah, every man gets a new chance when he's born. He doesn't have any sin on his head. He begins life anew with a clean slate and full opportunity of free will. The Bechira to become a Tzadik or to become the opposite according to his own choice. And it's such a fundamental truth 
that to make any exception, even in the case of Esav, is really a contradiction to the Amuna. If you're going to learn Torah in that way, it means that you are contradicting all of the principles of the Torah. Actually, Esav was much better than you imagine. The truth is that if Esav walked in here now, we would all get up for him out of respect. Now, I'm not interested in being melamed zechus on Esav, but we have to know the truth of the Torah. And the truth is that Esav was very great. I know that others laugh when they hear this. But I know this from my Rebbe Zichron Elivrocha. Esav grew up in the house of Yitzchak and Rivka. He grew up on the lap of his Zaydi, Avraham Avinu. He wasn't a nobody. Far from it. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel said, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel was a great man. And he had a great father too. And he said, in Breshis Rabbah, I never was able to attain the greatness of honoring my father like Esav honored Yitzchak. When Esav wanted to go into his father, he put on his begod of Hachmudas, his Yom Tov clothing. Imagine you want to go into your father to ask him for some money, for your allowance, and you put on your big day Yom Tov because you want to approach him, not because you're trying to butter him up, because you really mean it. Now, when Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel had to serve his father, he did it. No question about it. But he couldn't do it like Esav. You know, it's very difficult when a number of times during the day you have to go on some errand for your father. And you're going to have to change into your Shabbos clothing every time he calls you in. It takes a lot of dedication, a lot of character to do something like that. But Esav did it. He never walked into his father's presence without changing into his better clothes. And if his father needed him many times during the day, Esav didn't know that each time there was going to be another time. He changed his begadim each time. And this one story is only a mushal. It's only one example of who Esav was. Esav was a very good person with a tremendous amount of potential for greatness. And therefore, we have to think and rethink what it was that the Prophet told Rivka on that day. We can't understand Varav Yavod Tzair as a sentence, a punishment, and say that because Esau was born wicked, therefore he was punished, that he would have to serve his younger brother. Because that's absolutely not true. Esau could have been very great, as much success that Yaakov achieved. Esau could have achieved along with him. And so what does it mean that the older one would have to serve the younger one? What kind of serving of Yaakov does it mean if Esav had the Bechira to be a tzaddik gummer, a completely righteous man, and live a successful life on his own? And the answer is that this Nebuah foretold Esav's role in history, how Esav could gain fulfillment in his life. Esav's perfection in life was to be a helper, an assistant to Yaakov in accomplishing great things in the world. And although Esau was not going to be on top, he could still live a completely successful life if he would recognize his role. That's what the Navi was saying to Rivka. The role of Esau. The success of Esau is to help Yaakov fulfill his function in the world. And the younger one will serve the elder one. 
was heavenly guidance for Esav to understand his tough kid in this world. And had he been willing to fulfill that role, he could have made a different history. How sad it is that a person with such potential, such character and talents, should go lost. Because he won't accept that. If Esav would have executed his role properly, he wouldn't have been any less successful than Yaakov Avinu. Had he used his given talents, his ruddiness, his gavura to help Yaakov, he would have become great. No less than Yaakov Avinu. He would be in Olam Haba right now, sitting next to his younger brother, next to Yitzchak and Avraham and all of the tzaddikim. Only that Esau wasn't willing to accept his place in history. He wanted to be the leader. I'm on top or I'm out of here. That's why when he saw the brachas had been given to his younger brother, when he saw now that the prophecy and the older one shall serve the younger one was beginning to take shape, he couldn't take it. I should be subservient to Yaakov, said Esau. I don't want to hear stories about being a helper, about becoming great by means of being second. What happened? Vayelech el Eretz. Mipnei Yaakov Achiv. He went away to another land because of his brother Yaakov. Bracious. He felt that he just couldn't remain in the same country where his brother was the leader. And he made the unpardonable sin of forsaking his family because he couldn't tolerate being second. He ran away from his role. And that was the Makipapatish. The final blow that ruined Esav and his family Forever. The truth is that the heart bleeds. It really is a tragedy of tragedies. Asaph could have remained. Nobody sent him away. Imagine if he had accepted his role. How different the world's history would have become. He'd be a frequent visitor by us. He'd live a few blocks away or a mile away. And we'd be working together in the service of Hashem. But now he's cut off entirely. He chose to let go of the great privilege of being a member of this noble family, the holiest people in the world. I remember many years ago, in the Kehila there was somebody who lost out in matters of covet, and he became the second man in the Kehila. He wanted to be the president of the Kehila, and now he became only the vice president. What happened? He became so discouraged that he left the shul. He moved away from Brooklyn and settled in California. What a tragedy. You can't be the best. So be the second best or the third best. That's also a very great success in this world. So much good could have been accomplished in that Kehillah had he remained and taken up his role of helping from behind, from working in the background. Asaph could have come along with us. Didn't Yisro's children come along? And they succeeded. Vayar et hakeni. When Bilam saw the Keni, the descendants of Yisro among us, he said, Eitan Moshavecha. The place where you're seated is a strong place. Vesim basela kinecha. You put your nest on the rock. Bamidbar. It means you chose to attach yourself to the Bnei Yaakov. And now you're esconced. With them forever and ever. And we know that the children of Yisro sat in the Lishkas Hagazes, the Sanhedrin.
Soita. They didn't make the error of Esav. Now the truth is that we know that Esav's family never admitted that they made an error. The children of Esav forever held on to the thesis that they were the ones who were chosen to lead it. Had it been cheated away from them by their trickster uncle, Yaakov. You can see that from their name. They called themselves Edom, the Red Ones. Why did the children of Esav call themselves Edom? So some people say they know the reason. It says in the Chumash that it was because Esav came in one day when he was hungry and when he saw that Yaakov had made a red pottage of red soup, he said, Halitainina min ha'odom ha'odom mazeh. Give me some of that red, red soup. Al-Kain Karashimo Edom. And that's why he was forever called Edom. But does it make sense that Esav's children forever would call themselves by such an uncomplimentary name as a reminder that their ancestor had once been so careless as to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup? What bizarre can be greater than that? The red lentil people. They should have attempted to forget that incident altogether instead of perpetuating it by calling themselves by that name. The answer is they didn't call themselves Edom because of the red soup. That's the Torah's reason for their name. The Torah is telling us the real reason they received that name. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave them that name as a monument to the person who is willing to give up his entire future for a bowl of red lentils. For the sake of a desire of the moment, he gives away everything. That's Edom. But the nation of Edom had other ideas. They called themselves Edom because V'yaitzei Harishoin Hadomi. Esav came out first and he was ruddy. First and ruddy to them. That was a sign that Esav was the boss. He was red a sign of strength and vigor, because he was the one chosen by Hashem to be the leader. The Edomites never thought anything else. The story of the red stoop was not even known to Esau's posterity. To them, they were the Edomites, not because they were the red lentil people, but because they were the vigorous ones, the leaders. They couldn't accept their role. Because of that, they're cut off entirely. That's what Esav did. He went lost among the Goyim. And that means that Edom is the story of a people who gave up the greatness that they could have achieved because they didn't recognize their function in this world. I told you once how Rabbi Yisrael Salanter had made great plans to further Torah in the world. Rabbi Yisrael was full of good ideas. And so when he heard that Sir Moshe Montefiore the Lord Mayor of England was coming to visit Russia. Rav Yisrael recognized that this was a glorious opportunity in history because Sir Moshe Montefiore had everything that Rav Yisrael Salanter lacked. He had money and prestige and connections. Everything that Rav Yisrael would need for his plan to bring the Am Yisrael back to Hashem. Rav Yisrael, on the other hand, had everything that Moshe Montefiore lacked. Rav Yisrael Salanter was a godal batayda, a brilliant man, and he had a clear vision of what he wanted, as well as an excellent mind, 
capable of executing the visions. So Rav Yisrael thought that if he could get together, Rav Moshe Montefiore would help him turn the world upside down. They could bring back the whole Am Yisrael to Torah, and who knows what they could accomplish. Together, they could be Mekarov the Geula. I said these last words. Rav Yisrael didn't say Mekarov the Geula. And so Rav Yisrael made attempts to meet Rav Moshe Montefiore. But lo mistaya milsa. It didn't happen. Rav Moshe Montefiore had a certain German Jew, Dr. Levy, as his secretary. And Dr. Levy had his own ideas about Russian Jewish rabbis. He had his own ideas who the real leaders of the Jewish people are, about who should be helping who. And therefore the Shidduch never took place. Rabbi Yisrael never was able to meet with Rabbi Moshe Montefiore. That's one of the great tragedies of our history. It was the tragedy of ignoring the lesson of Rav Yavod Tzair. Rabbi Moshe Montefiore, Zichron Levracha, certainly did good things. And Rabbi Yisrael, Zichron Levracha, certainly did good things. But what they could have done together would have changed the course of history. Had Rav Moshe Montefiore recognized what his true role was expected to be, he would have come running to Rav Yisrael. He would have sat at Rav Yisrael's feet and asked him what he should do next. But it never took place because of someone who didn't recognize his role in this world. The role of being a helper, an assistant to the ones who are greater than him. And that brings us back to Esav and his tragic refusal to accept his role. Now the truth is that there were some times in history when Esav's children did accept the role of Verav Yavod Tzair. And they succeeded just because of that. If we would look in history, we would find instances, single cases where the descendants of Esav did fulfill their proper role. We'll take an example so that we should understand it well. And that's the noble story of the Roman emperor, Antoninus the Pius. He wrote a book. You can still find it in the public library. It's in English today. It's called Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. That was his name. It's a Musser book. And when it comes to Antoninus, we have an instance of Asav, who fulfilled his role, a Roman emperor who was humbled before the Torah leader. Although the masses of the Roman populace, the plebeians, who were not necessarily of Edom, but according to our tradition, the patrician class, the Roman nobility, were descendants from Edom. It means Antoninus was a great-grandson of Asaph. Now listen to this remarkable story. In the days after the war of Betar, the Romans were very angry at the Am Yisrael, and they were busy making gazetas against the Jews who were left in Eretz Yisrael. Do you remember how for seven years the Romans didn't let us bury the dead? Thousands of Jews killed near Betar were laying around unburied for seven years. And Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rebbe, was appointed to travel to Rome in order to make a personal appeal to the Roman Senate and the Emperor, that they should rescind the Gezeris. During that period of time, when Rebbe was in Rome, meeting with the aristocracy, he came in contact with an intelligent young Roman named Marcus Aurelius. 
And this young man fell in love with the Rebbe's personality. With his character and greatness of mind, he admired Rebbe to no end. And then, many years later, when this young Roman became the emperor, that's Emperor Antoninus, he became a Talmud of Rebbe. How did that happen? The Roman emperors had a vacation place in Caesarea, in Eretz It was a Roman city. Jews lived there too, but it was a Gentile city. And Antoninus chose to spend his vacations over there. And he had a reason for that. It was because he wanted to come in contact with his old friend, whom he admired so much, Rabbeinu Yehuda Hanasi. Now, during the War of Betar, the Jews had made tunnels underground everywhere. They used guerrilla tactics in their attempts to fight off the Roman legions. They had secret ways of going through the tunnels that crisscrossed the country. And they would appear suddenly and attack the surprised Romans. And after the war, the tunnels remained. They weren't used anymore, but they remained. Antoninus had a tunnel right near his palace in Caesarea. And through this tunnel he came every night to Rebbe's residence to visit him. Every night he came to Rebbe. Of course, no one was permitted to know of this relationship between Antoninus and Rebbe. Because if the Romans would know that the emperor humbles himself before the Chachmea then he would certainly have been assassinated. A Roman emperor was supposed to be cruel to the Jewish people. That was the policy. And if it would be known that he was friendly with a Jewish leader, if it would be found that he's loyal to the Jewish people, that he looks up to them and supports them, they would kill him immediately. And therefore, Antoninus practiced the utmost secrecy. It was a secret that nobody ever heard outside of the Chachmea Torah. The Chachamim in Gemara of Eidazorah described the scene for us. Every day Antoninus traveled through the tunnel to come visit Rebbe and he would serve him with food and with wine at the table like a butler. And when Rebbe wanted to climb up onto his bed so Antoninus would bend down in front of the bed like a footstool and he said, Rebbe, please step on me in order to climb into your bed. Rebbe said, But it's not Derech Eretz. It's improper to treat a king so much. Even though you're not our king, but still, we have to respect the emperor. So Antoninus said to Rebbe, If only I could be your mattress in the next world. It means, I just want to be underneath you to serve you. I understand my role in life. Antoninus asked Rebbe, Will I come to Oilam Haba? And when Rebbe assured him that he would, Antoninus said, But isn't it written, That nothing will remain from the house of Esav. It means that the whole nation of Edom finally went lost. Nothing remains of the nation of Edom in this world anymore. They disappeared entirely. But this pasuk means more than that. Even worse than that, not only in this world, In the world to come, nothing will remain of Esau. That's the biggest tragedy. That's why Antoninus asked Rebbe, How could you say that I have Oilam Haba? I'm from the house of Esau. I'm descended from Esau. So Rebbe told him, That's only Be'oise Maise Esau. If you behave like Esau did, 
It means if you abdicate your role of helping Yaakov, if you walk in the footsteps of your Zaydi Esav, then it's true. But if you fulfill your tafkid, you'll have Olam Haba. If you fulfill your role in this world, then you'll have Olam Haba forever and ever. Now listen to what the result of Esav fulfilling his role in this world is. The Am Yisrael was facing grave danger in those days. After all, they wouldn't be much longer in Eretz Yisrael. The Romans were taking over. The Beis Amigdash was destroyed and they were being sent into exile. What's going to happen to the Jewish nation now? It was a very tenuous time, and therefore Rebbe understood that the time had come to take action, to be choysen the Mishnah, to set in stone the Mishnayis as the foundation of the Torah, Shabal Peh, forever. You know, now that we have finished Mishnah, it seems to us a simple matter. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi convened his sages, and they took a vote, and they decided that the Mishnah from now on is closed. They made some editorial improvements, and they closed the Mishnah. Very simple. It's finished. But actually, it wasn't simple at all. Rebbe said, the time has come that we have to do something about the Mishnah, but I cannot act as Nasi and call together the Chachamim, because Rome is against making the Sanhedrin. The Romans wouldn't allow it. They considered it a rebellion. And without a Nasi, without a Sanhedrin, Rebbe wouldn't have the authority needed to take such action. Why would the Am Yisrael, as one, obey him? Do you know that at the same time that Rebbe made the Mishnah, there was a huge Jewish community, a Torah community in Bavel? And they could say, why should we obey Rebbe? Why should we have to obey the Chachmei Eretz Yisrael and declare the Mishnah sealed or accept their final version of the Mishnah? Just as the Mishnah had continued until now for centuries and centuries from the Anche Knesset HaGadoyla. And we could add to it opinions of successive generations of Chachamim. So we should continue to be able to do so. Where did you get such authority, such audacity to make such an important decision for all generations that the Mishnah is now closed? And the answer is, it was because of Esau. Because where did Rebbe get his power and his great wealth? It was from his disciple, Antoninus, the Roman emperor. It was the backing of Antoninus that made it happen. It was a secret backing, but it was what the Am Yisrael needed. Antoninus caused the Rebbe to become tremendously wealthy. And so in addition to being the greatest sage, he now had power unequaled among the Jewish people. Antoninus gave Rebbe a confidence, and inspired by that confidence, Rebbe forged ahead. He knew that the Roman emperor was secretly backing him that the resources of the entire Roman Empire are backing him. He never had to bring any Roman legions to help him. But Antoninus said, you go ahead and do it, and I'll defend you. And that was enough. Rebbe came together with all of the Chachmei Yisrael, and the Romans didn't do anything. They couldn't, because the emperor said quietly to them, don't bother them. The great Torah leaders came from Bavel, from Madai, 
From everywhere they came together under Rebbe. And they weighed every word. And they decided when it should be a Stam Mishnah. When it should be a Machlaikis. They put in all the words of the Chachamim that were added from Yavne'an. And they edited it with a fine-tooth comb and established the final language of the Mishnah. They came together as one and put their final stamp on the Mishnah forever. From now on, nobody could add one word onto the Mishnah. And therefore, it's because of Antoninus that we have a Mishnayus today that saved us. If Rebbe hadn't done that, we'd be today such a disorganized nation. There would be so many different Nuschayus in Halacha. Even today, with the Mishnah, there are so many different opinions. But had we not had a unified Mishnah, who knows what would have been? And the one who was responsible for our salvation was Antoninus. Esav served Yaakov, and the Am Yisrael survived. Because of the humility of Antoninus, a tremendous achievement resulted. And so we see what was accomplished when Verav Yavod Sayyid, when Esav agreed to be subservient, to help, and thereby accomplish what would have been impossible without his assistance. And that's what could have happened throughout history. Who knows what big achievements could have been performed if those who Hashem wants to fulfill their roles as helpers would have been willing to be subservient. Now, to understand this, in a more practical sense, we'll have to make a little bit of effort and not just brush it off and say Asa was a sinner and so on and so forth. There's much more to it than that. We must know that the Torah wrote the story of Asa for the purpose of Toida, of teaching us lessons that apply to our very own lives. And that brings us to our subject, because in our lives, there are very many parallels to the episode of Asaph shrugging off his role. One of the most important lessons we're expected to learn from the error of Asaph is to make use of the various roles that Hashem gives us in this world. To realize that for many people, their greatness lies not in being leaders, but in helping the leader. Many good people who should be achieving greatness by means of assisting others, are instead trying to be little chief rabbis. You'd be surprised how many Jews are trying to live up to that role right now. And it means they're not accomplishing what they could because they're making the same mistake that Asaph made. Here's a little rabbi who recently was ordained by Yeshiva University. The ink is not yet dried on his smicha, and he comes out to lead the world. Rabbi Paul, so-and-so. He has a mustache, a golden wristwatch, and a Gentile name. So he imagines himself as a leader of the Jewish people. So on Erev Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Paul, so-and-so, issues a call to the Jewish nation to do teshuva. It's in the newspapers. Rabbi Paul calls on the people to return to God. Are there no Rosh Yeshivas around that we need Rabbi Paul to lead the way? By means of an advertisement, he made himself the chief rabbi of the Jewish nation. Or some other little fellow who recently graduated, and now he's elected a rabbi of a congregation out in Queens. He puts a big ad in the newspaper, 
advising the Rosh Yeshivas and the Chochmei how they should behave in regards to a certain communal issue. What? A loss. These are men with capabilities, with talents, and they're squandering it all just because they want to be leaders. How good it would be if a man like them would come to the Toyota leaders and say, what can we do to help you? That's what they should do. And that's what they should be thinking about. How can I fulfill the Rav Yavod Sayyid and be successful in this world? And there are very many like that. Some don't have the money to advertise, but in their heart of hearts, it's the same thing. I had a conversation with one of them, a freshly ordained rabbi. He says, Rabbi Miller, you think we should follow the Roshi Yeshiva like blind sheep? I said, certainly we should, because we are blind sheep. I'm also a blind sheep, and I have to follow the Gedoyle Yisroel. And you are 30 years younger than I am. So certainly you have to follow the Gedoyle Yisroel, but not only follow them we should be searching for ways to fulfill our role of being helpers to them. So this little guddle told me, I was brought up not to obey. He's not ashamed to make such a statement. He was brought up like that. So there's something very wrong in his education. And the fact is that there are so many Jews who have never learned this, that they have sufficient numbers to form a numerous party. That's the Mizrahi. The Mizrahi has never learned that there's such a thing as obeying Gedoylim. And even their own so-called Gedoylim, they disobey. But the truth is that we have to not point fingers at others. Mostly, we have to look inside at ourselves. We have to realize that not everybody is a God. Most of us are Ketanim. Many people are not born to be leaders. Nothing wrong. Not everybody is gifted like that. But what do we see? There are so many who instead of using their talents to serve the Chachmei they set themselves up as leaders of little institutions, as leaders of little independent movements without feeling the necessity to back the truly great national Torah leaders. Now there's nothing wrong if you establish your own yeshiva, a little organization of your own, a little movement. There's nothing wrong with that because you might have ideas and talents and capabilities that others don't. But everybody should feel the necessity of contributing his efforts, his abilities, his weight to the national effort of our Torah leaders. We have to follow the Chachmei Atoida, the great Roshi Yeshivas. They are the Yaakov. We're not Esav, but we have to serve them. That's our role right now. We have to find ways and means of helping them. Our success is in being together with them. Our lot should be together with them forever. Then we'll succeed in both worlds. We must sit at the feet of our Chachamim. We means all of us. Even the grown men of 60 and 70, not only to study from them, but to act on their behalf, to assist them in their endeavors, in everything they want to accomplish. We have plenty of great men. Baruch Hashem! HaKadosh Baruch Hu should give them long lives. 
And we have to listen to them. They are the ones who take the initiative. And we follow. We help. But because each one wants to be the leader, therefore very many big achievements are never carried out. All the community members should be helping the Rabbonim. And the Rabbonim should help the Roshi Yeshiva. And the Roshi Yeshiva are standing before the G'day Lehador, helping them carry out their plans. Because helping is the form of success, which is decreed for most of us. Every Jew should do whatever he can to help his Rav succeed. Today, in many places, if someone becomes a rabbi in a congregation of a hundred members, there are a hundred rabbis and one member. A hundred teachers are teaching him what's right and what's wrong because nobody understands their role. Nobody wants to be a helper. I remember when we started giving our Gemara Shirim here. There was a man who took upon himself to hand out flyers in the yeshiva, on the street, making sure that others knew about it. Nobody asked him, but he saw an opportunity for greatness, and he grabbed it. Now, he wasn't capable of giving the lecture, not at all, but he realized what he was capable of doing, and he did it. We should remember that this entire institution of our tapes was only successful because of one man, Pinchas Shelby. He was the one who organized our lecture here. And from the very beginning, he was dedicated to being in the background and making it work. Not only that, he came every Thursday night with his car to pick me up. And he took me home after the lecture. And it cost him a lot of money. Week after week. Because there were expenses involved here. And then it was his idea to spread the tapes to the world. The tapes spread because of him. It was his vision. He thought about it before anyone else did. And he grabbed the opportunity to be yavod in this world, to make himself great by means of being a helper. Now we shouldn't end our discussion without speaking about a more domestic instance Something that applies in the home. Every woman should feel that she will succeed most perfectly in this world in her role as a helpmate, as an azer. A wife should feel that she's an assistant to her husband. She has to help him carry out his ambitions for Torah, his ideals for the family, instead of trying to be the leader and to contradict him and to conduct the family according to her rights. Sometimes there's a wife who feels that she shouldn't bask in the splendor of her husband's brilliance. She also wants to be a leader. Especially today, there are women who feel that their role of a career girl must continue after marriage. And therefore, they are trying to hold the steering wheel at the same time that the husband is trying to steer. And you know what happens when two hands are guiding the steering wheel? So you'll ask me, how can I so flippantly hand over the leadership of the family to the husband? Doesn't leadership depend on certain abilities? The answer is that we have to make an institution that agrees with nature. Not an artificial thing. When I say nature, I mean nature with a capital N. I mean HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And by nature, the husband is chosen as the leader. A man 
has a beard. A beard makes the chin look bigger. You have to know that. A beard gives you a big chin. It makes you look more authoritative. A man is taller than a woman. You see that a wife is usually shorter than her husband. That's how Hashem made it. A man gives off the aura of authority more than a woman does. All over the world, whether it's among the black people or the Eskimos, wherever you go, it's the case that the father is the leader. And it's common sense too, because he has more physical force. Sometimes he has to fight with his son. In the good old days, the father used the club to give his son a good beating. And the father was the one who was best able to do it. Men are more arrogant, more rough, whereas women are more humble, more modest, more reticent than men by nature. She has a softer heart. You can't have two captains in one house. If you have two captains on one ship, then you're looking for trouble. Sooner or later, there will be a mutiny. A wife who is subservient to a Ben Toyota husband, or even a partial Ben Toyota, shouldn't feel that it is beneath her dignity to accept the role of chief first mate. When you know that your husband is a normal observant Jew, so it's your job to be loyal to him and to help him to succeed. Of course, we're not talking about slavery, about mistreatment. A wife is the queen in the home. That's very important. Give honor to your wives. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives a blessing on a man for that. Ki hechi v'tisatu. In order that you should become wealthy. Bava Messiah. You'll get rich for that. Because that's what every wife deserves. More than you respect yourself, you should respect your wife. Now of course, we can't always make delineations of roles and imagine that it's so simple. We understand that there are various circumstances of life. And therefore, all of the ideals we are speaking about tonight must be applied judiciously with Seichel. Even in Europe, I remember seeing families where the husband was not suited for leadership and the role was abdicated to the wife. But even then, when the mother was more capable, it paid for her to assign to the father a nominal role as the head of the family. She used her abilities to tell the children, Children! Listen to what your father said. It paid off because Hashem set up that system, a system that's ordained for the happiness of mankind. And if you're going to have competition, the end will be a marriage that will crash up on the rocks of life. But it's not only in marriage. It's not only in the home, all of our lives. We are expected to learn a lesson from the mistake of Asaph and fulfill our roles as helpers, as assistants to all good things. Naturally, in one place you might be expected to lead, while in another place you should find ways to remain in the background and help, to be an assistant. In her home, the successful wife knows how to maneuver with diplomacy and succeed while somewhere else... She might lead. In the home, maybe the husband is a leader. In the synagogue, not so much. But whatever it may be, you must be aware of your role in order to be a success. A person can best fulfill his role in this world when he recognizes what Esav didn't. And for most of us, for ordinary from Jews, 
our great perfection in life is attaching ourselves to people greater than us and to be a service to them. That's our success in life, to participate in all the good endeavors that find favor in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's part of how we strive to make something out of ourselves, to not remain nobodies. Success doesn't mean you have to become famous. That's not important. Greatness in this world doesn't mean that you go start a big movement. You can do tremendous things even without ever being a leader as long as you utilize the opportunities to help, to assist as much as possible. As long as we learn the lesson that Asav never learned, that being a helper can be the best achievement in life, it means that we are finding favor in the eyes of Hashem by means of living successfully. Have a wonderful Shabbos!